The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg right, in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, it's good to be with you. Glad you're with us. Appreciate your, your patience and, and your grace and being a little undermanned this morning. But we're grateful that we are here to gather and worship Christ as a family. We're going to be in Psalm 72 as we continue our, our summer series through the book of Psalms. Every other year about we, we take a break during the summer and we open up the book of Psalms and we, we select um, a cross-section of different Psalms from the Psalter that can begin to train and equip our own emotions and our consciences for how to worship and, thank you, how to worship and speak to God, how to hear for what God's leading is in difficult situations. The Psalms are rich in theology and in language that help us do that. Uh, so it's, it's important for us from time to time to spend an extended amount of, of time in study of the Psalms. So we'll do that this summer through the rest of, the rest of uh, this month and next month together. So we're in Psalm 72. This is the last Psalm before... Book three begins. The psalm, of course, is divided into five books internally. Psalm 72 is the end of book two. So there's a doxology there at the end, which we sung, that belongs both to this psalm and to the book as a whole. But before we go further, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we consider what it means to study God's word together and for those who are not with us to be encouraged. So let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we uh, begin to bow our hearts to the reverence of your word, that we would be mindful of the lives that were laid down to bring us this book, the work that went into translation, the ordaining and the providences by your hand to preserve and carry this book through the prophets to missionaries, to church planters, to us. So we pray, Lord, that as we study your word, our hearts would be drawn to Christ to whom it points and not fixated on ourselves or our lives but our identities in our lives in submission to Christ. Lord, your word has the power to cut through marrow and bone to the heart of man. We pray that you would do that this morning through this text. We pray for those who are not here because they're sick, because they're ill, they're traveling, or just unable to gather for various reasons. God, we pray for their encouragement in the Lord. We pray that through Christ, they could take up the word, read, and study. Perhaps as they listen now, they could be encouraged that we love them, that you care for them. We pray for their quick healing and restoration. We pray, God, that you would bring the circumstances that have brought them away from church to end so that they would gather again with God's people to worship and celebrate in person. But Lord, we look forward to the day where even as we do gather, we would not hear and read and sing as in a mirror dimly lit, but face to face with full knowledge and full realization of all the things that we begin to behold this morning and in this life. We pray for your guidance now, we pray, as always, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 72. I'll read it, and I'll invite you to give thanks to the Lord with me. I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you may respond, thanks be to God. Psalm 72, of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, 
May he be like the rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound to the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people bless in him, be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, throughout history's man, all, all of history's, mankind's histories, one thing is constant, that we have always put our hope and our trust in other men. This isn't wrong. It's natural. God intends for us to look to one another for help. And when societies are built and established, naturally certain people arise as leaders, as kings, as authority. Looking to headship, to authority, is natural. It's even in the created order. God himself was to lead Adam in the garden. And Adam was to lead Eve as his helpmate. We see what's natural even after the garden and the expulsion of Adam and Eve from it. That as societies and cultures were built, leaders would put in place to establish order and even in our own society, democratic as it may be, we see that we elect and look to certain leaders to work for the good of the people under their care. We vest them with authority and we charge them with responsibility to lead, to shepherd, to make decisions and to act on behalf so that those under their care, their nation, their tribe, their family, whatever it may be, would flourish as they seek their good and their well-being. No man has always put trust in other men. Though sometimes this trust backfires. We put our hope and our trust in men whose ways are wicked and deceitful, who's selfish, and use others for their own gains, who put others before themselves in the sense that they would rather sacrifice those who may have been given to care for to preserve their own life or to enrich their own pockets. But what does truly godly leadership look like? What does a king, a ruler, a leader that enjoys the benefits of God's provision and protection, what does that look like? Well, Israel and Scripture sought to ensure that their leaders would be committed and continue in their commitment to God's word. That they would not constantly step off the path towards unrighteousness, but would rather stick to God's word, committed to God's ways, that they may lead God's people faithfully. Yet because of sin, they constantly failed in this effort. But it does not stop the psalmist here in Psalm 72 for giving a picture or a glimpse of what godly leadership would look like. Outlining the godly characteristics and duties of the king who would be a servant of the Lord to lead and guide God's people. So Psalm 72, in essence, is a portrait of such a leader. It's a portrait of a king who is to lead God's people 
into prosperity and flourishing. But Psalm 72 doesn't just tell us what kind of king he must be, that is, what he must look like and what he would do, but also what kind of kingdom he will establish, what kind of rule he will establish, and the unique blessings then to the people of God under which we give ourselves to this king. What kind of kingdom will, will be birthed if a king is righteous and just and godly and is a servant of the Lord? That's the idea of Psalm 72. And you may have noticed as we read it that the standards and the prayers and the aspirations of a king cannot fit any one human king. The words ascribed to this one person goes far beyond what any one man could achieve. So you would be correct in assuming that there is a prophetic nature to this psalm. There is a messianic hope and a forward-looking expectation to a king that would come. And friends, you and I know that this is the kingship of Christ. The main idea from Psalm 72 that we explore this morning is that under the kingship of Christ, God's people enjoy prosperity. They enjoy fulfillment and in blessings. Under the kingship of Christ, God's people enjoy prosperity, fulfillment, and blessings. Just a few quick notes about Psalm 72 before we continue. This is probably what's called a coronation hymn or song. One that would be sung or read or prayed at the coronation of a new king. This is not unique just to Israel, but in all kingdoms where they would have a procession and a formal inauguration of one leader from the next. They would pronounce the death of the king and then announce the installation of a new Long live the king, they would say. So Psalm 72 is a coronation for a new king taking authority and taking his position as ruler over God's people. And it's a prayer of what God would ultimately accomplish through this king as he submits himself to the word and the work of God in his life. And in doing this, and it's invoking several different covenantal hopes. It draws on the covenants God made with Adam and with Abraham, and even with David, who likely wrote or at least inspired this psalm. And it invokes these hopes based in God's covenant promises in order that this new king's, who, his reign, who's being established, would be squarely rooted and established in the greater kingship of God. Israel recognized that though there are earthly kings, sovereign monarchs like David or Solomon, but the true king of Israel is not David, nor Solomon, nor anyone who sits upon the throne, but is God himself. So one of the things that this psalm does, as it establishes the trajectory, the godly trajectory of this new king, is establish this reign in the expectation that it would be squarely set in the greater kingship of God. And what it's doing then is tying the hope of God's fulfillment of His promises directly to the ruler of God's people. The two become tied together. As if to say, this man, the king, will be used of God to bring about the many blessings He has promised to our fathers. That's what they saw in the monarch of Israel. The promises made to Adam to Moses, to David, to Abraham, the promises that flowed through the prophets would come true through the rule and the reign of their king. The promises themselves made this clear. And so they would tie their hopes and their promise of the promises that God would fulfill to this man who would become king. Psalm 72 is a prayer that the king who is being installed here, perhaps Solomon, would live and lead in such a way that through his rule and reign, God would fulfill his purposes and his promises. That the hope that they've had for so long would begin to come to fruition. And that the joy and the prosperity and the blessing which is promised to them by covenant would become a reality for them under the headship of this 
king. Well, there's several ways we can go about Psalm 72. My intention this morning is to demonstrate three marks of the king's godly rule that we may see how God intends to use his king to bring about his purposes. Three marks or three distinguishing marks of the king's godly rule. The first distinguishing mark is this, prosperity. Look at the first seven verses. It says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. And may he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people, and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. And look in verse 7. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. This distinguishing mark of prosperity which is possessed by the kingly rule of this individual marks the fact that God has set him apart for his purposes. Notice there's two words here in verse 3 and verse 7, prosperity and peace, come from the same Hebrew word. You probably have heard of it. Shalom. Shalom is often used as a greeting, a welcome and a farewell, but you and I know that's much more than that. In our own passing of the peace, we're not simply saying hello to one another, but something more and deeper. We are declaring and announcing and even praying that the peace of God would continue to work in our lives for our flourishment, for our joy. So prosperity and peace here really capture two sides of the idea of shalom in the Hebrew vocabulary. This is the holistic ideal of what God intends to do in his creation, wellness and prosperity or harmony, if you'd like. You can think of a woven fabric in which all is brought together in perfect harmony. There's an abounding goodness that then would be felt and experienced in all areas of life, relationally, civically, socially, and most importantly, between God and man. So peace here and prosperity is not simply wealth in the bank. It's not simply things going your way, but it is an overabounding grace of God which fills your life with abundance of joy and wellness. It's a harmony that has been restructured and reordered in your life according to God's word and work. So this is the prosperity that is to mark this kingly rule. As this anointed one of God gives out justice and righteousness and leads his people according to God's word, prosperity would be the result. And this prosperity we learn is rooted in two characteristics which must govern the rule of the king. Look in verse 2. He must judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Again, early in verse 1, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. So these two characteristics are the thing that produces prosperity, the wellness, the harmony, the joy, the holistic abounding goodness that's felt and experienced in all of life comes through the right administration of justice. In righteousness. Notice where the source of these traits flow. There in verse 1, they come from God Himself. Give the King your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal Son. May He judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. So this, the, the traits of righteousness and justice flow from God Himself to His anointed so that His anointed King may care for His own people. You see, at this point, then the king who is anointed is no more than really a steward of God's grace to lead and protect God's people according to righteousness and judgment which has been given to him by God. In such a rule, you must look to the righteous characteristic of justice in the heart and the administration of this leader if you are to have any hope for prosperity. They come from God Himself. That is, God's justice and God's righteousness, you know, are always perfect. And so therefore, when this king who has been given God's character of righteousness and justice 
exercises those qualities. There can be nothing short of prosperity. There is no other outcome possible in the right administration of justice and prosperity and peace, but flourishing for God's people. And so Psalm 72 acts as a reminder to its readers and to you and I this morning that such care and concern for the poor and the oppressed is really a signal of the king's right administration of justice and his moral influence over the nation. We know that the king is doing his job when there are no poor who are being oppressed, when there are no disparities. The king signals his success and his right administration when the oppressed are liberated and the poor and the needy are provided for. It is a clear mark of his own just and righteous character and thus his own fitness for the role of king. This king then becomes all the more important to carry out God's plans forward on earth. This king who has been given God's justice and righteousness to execute in his administration over God's people. The result of which is prosperity. And as the psalm draws our attention to the kingdom to be established under the righteous reign of God's anointed king, we then discover that there is no true or lasting prosperity where there is poverty and oppression unchecked. He says that he would, verse 4, defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. And as he gives and delivers justice and righteousness, we see that they learn to fear him as the sun endures and throughout all generations, that he would be like rain, verse 6, that falls on the grass and showers the water that waters the earth. This nourishing, thirst-quenching righteousness and justice produces flourishing and prosperity. And there in verse 7, peace, which abounds forever and ever. This is the kind of kingdom that it's established under the righteous reign of God's king. And therefore, there is no true prosperity apart from righteousness. There is no true prosperity apart from justice. And there cannot be prosperity where there is poverty and oppression unchecked. Because prosperity, by definition, must consist of righteousness and justice. And so the kingdom of such a ruler will be one of equity, of mutual flourishing for all of its inhabitants. What does this mean for those who take Psalm 72 as a hope to what God would accomplish in the future? The effect of such a discovery like this should invariably cause us to yearn for such a day where righteousness and justice, as the prophet Amos would say, would flow like water and like an ever-flowing stream. This is the hope of God's people, that God's leader would establish justice and righteousness and equity so that righteousness and justice would flow like streams through the city of God, feeding and nourishing and growing the prosperity of those under his care. So the first distinguishing mark of the righteous rule and reign of this anointed king is that of prosperity. Secondly, the second distinguishing mark is that of dominion. Again, in verses 8 through 11, we see that there's a scope of the king's influence and rule, specifically as the nation prospers under his care. It says, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the lands of the coastlands render him tributes. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. So as the nation flourishes under his care, under the righteous administration of justice, we see the dominion and the scope of his rule begins to extend. The boundaries of such a righteous, prosperous government begins to cover the whole earth. And the language of the psalm uses intentionally that of dominion. Verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. That is, this exercise of authority and power over all the earth. Well, clearly neither David nor Solomon would have understood themselves to be king over other nations. They, they knew the boundaries of their own nation. But rather, the psalmist here understands that the fullness of the prosperity that God will one day bring and usher in will enable his kingdom under this wise, just, righteous, appointed king to become virtually universal. His dominion becomes virtually universal. And notice the second part of verse 9. It says, The desert tribes bow down before him, and the enemies lick the dust. This is an odd insult, but the imagery here, alongside the language of dominion that we've already established, it actually is to take us back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. They were told to cultivate and subdue the earth to bring forth its bounty, to be fruitful and to multiply. They were God's image bearers on earth and they were given dominion, a small form of authority that images God's ultimate authority over creation. Adam and Eve were given this kind of dominion over the earth. The world was created for Adam and Eve to exercise dominion over it. Just as God is authority, has authority over all creation, Adam and Eve were given the charge and the care to exercise authority over their creation. And yet, of course, they failed in this. They listened to the lie of the serpent, who we know to be Satan, and just they exchanged dominion from their hands to his. The enemy now, we are told from Scripture, is the ruler of this age. He is the one who is the ruler, John would say, of this world. So the dominion of the earth no longer was Adam's first priority. But he gave a broken form of dominion over to the enemy. So God would come and he, of course, in Genesis 3, curses the serpent. And the curse for the serpent for having deceived Adam and Eve was this. This is Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Did you see it? The curse on the serpent for having destroyed the work of dominion God gave to Adam and Eve was ultimately to eat dust. There in verse 9, we see that this king would ultimately have victory over his enemies who would lick dust. But notice, however, the very next verse, Genesis 3.15, will say that I have put enmity between you, that is the snake, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, for he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We know this promise. The first gospel promise in all of the scriptures comes right after the curse that says that the enemy of God shall eat the dust. So what's happening? What does this mean? It means that when Psalm 72 is envisioning the kind of growing prosperity and this universal authority of the kingdom under the just and righteous rule of God's anointed king, it's actually part of the reordering and the restoring of God's good creation. It's drawing on the promise that God said that the enemy of God would be consigned to the dust and that he shall be bruised by the heel of his servant, the seed of the woman. In other words, the result of God's earthly king in Psalm 72, the one that we are praying for, the result of his doing his job well is the retaking of dominion back from the hands of the enemy and forward into God's original and glorious design for his creation. It is, in effect, a reversal of the curse and the enmity in life as a result of the fall. You see how we are not any longer talking about one particular man, David nor Solomon, but the hopes here are penned to the king who alone can do this. The king, in essence, becomes the dominion-exercising ruler that Adam failed to be. 
And in verses 12 through 14, we see again, we're reminded again of how such a kingdom would look. It's led by a king who is both full of compassion and love. He delivers the needy and poor. And him on who has no helper, he has compassion or pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. So notice the compassion the ruler has on his people who are oppressed and poor, who are vulnerable and without help. And notice that in his sight, their very blood is precious. That is, there's a love and a concern deeper than just the responsibilities of a king that has to administer certain kingly duties. No, his heart beats for the very people for whom he has been called to serve. His blood is precious in his sight. He loves them, and out of compassion, he gives himself to the task of delivering them. This is part of his exercise of dominion, of taking back what has been given away in the garden, restoring God's purposes of redemption and glory. The point here then is that a kingdom which exists under God's anointed will inevitably not look and feel like the other kingdoms of the world, the way things have always been. Ever since dominion was exchanged for a lie, ever since the God of this age has taken control, under the sovereignty of God, of course, nations and men and leadership have always corrupted their hearts. Those nations reject and they rebel against God. But in their rebellion and rejection, they are not able to achieve the blessing and the prosperity that every soul longs for. The glory and the blessing and the prosperity that was lost in Genesis 3. And thus Psalm 2, another royal psalm just like Psalm 72, warns this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God puts forth a king to settle the debts of God's people and to reconcile those who have raged against God, his enemies. So the king then is worthy of tribute of the gifts that were rendered to him in Aaron verse 10. He's eminently worthy of the praise that is ascribed to him as all nations bow down and serve him in verse 11. Thus, Psalm 72 looks again beyond David, beyond Solomon, to the promised king who can rightly rule over the nations. As God ushers in the fulfillment of his promises, he reestablishes the created order through the rule and reign of this individual. He brings an end to the enmity and the war against God's people by establishing peace through righteousness. That's a king. It's not David nor Solomon, but they both knew that God would establish a kingdom over which a king like this would reign. So the godly rule and reign of God's anointed king is marked first by prosperity, secondly by dominion, and lastly by blessing. Psalm 72 prays for the king's rule to be marked by blessing. In verse 15 and 16, the theme again of prosperity continues on. It describes the abundance of the harvest and the provision for those who are subjects of the king. But the great prosperity of God's people is not only the blessings that they receive in abundance. The psalm once again is intentionally picking up on the language of two other promises and the blessings that it believes will be fulfilled by the Lord's anointed. The first promise, blessing, is seen in verse 15. Long may he live, or more literally, may he continue 
the unending nature of this king's rule is prayed for. And it's most undoubtedly a reference to the promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7, in which God tells David that he will build a house for him and that someone from David's house will sit on the throne which will last forever. This kingdom which will have no end. The ruler on the throne will be the ruler on the throne forever. So David and Solomon, knowing and believing in the promise and the covenant God made with him, will pray that the king who is put in place by God will be the one who establishes such peace and reign forever. Take it as a prayer for Solomon, of course. This would simply nod to the godly legacy that each king must leave to the successive generations. But as a nod to the Davidic covenant, it is a prayer that God would indeed act in, accord, in order to establish this unending kingdom for the good of his people. So David again prays to that regard. But the second promise referenced here, it's a bit easier to spot in verse 17. May the people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. But not, of course, to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. It takes up the, the cause of the Abrahamic covenant. And there God promises that the seed of Abraham, much like the seed of Adam and the seed of David, will one day be the blessing of all the nations. Through this one, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So David not only looks to Genesis 3 and remembers the promise that God made to Adam, and he not only recalls in his own promise that David's house and kingdom will go on forever, but even Abraham's promise that one of his own will be a blessing to all of the world. In communicating this assurance of the covenantal promises that God had made to others, Psalm 72 wonderfully demonstrates that God will surely bring these promises to fruition through his anointed king. Take note then that such promises, we learn, are only fulfilled by God. It says that he alone, verse 18, does wondrous things. It is not incumbent upon David himself or Solomon himself or Rehoboam himself or any of the kings that follow who will fall before God and sin to be able to usher in God alone must work these wondrous things. It is His righteousness, His judgment, His spirit, which must lead and fall upon the servant of the Lord, the King of God, this messianic figure who would bring in and usher in these promises. It's an outflowing of praise that results in this doxology we have in verse 18 and 19 an outflowing of praise and assurance that God's work in fulfilling His promises will soon be finished. We will have in this king Adamic dominion, Abrahamic blessing, Davidic kingship, and all of these will come to fruition and meet in God's final purposes. And this king will be moved, friends, to look to God alone for this prosperity, for the fulfillment of our role as dominion and image bearers. Look to God alone to produce the prosperity which leads to our blessing and the blessing of all the other nations. God himself, we are told, will ensure the victory and he will raise up this king. Unfortunately, the world has known no such leader among its ranks. Neither David nor Solomon nor any other king of any other nation would lead their people in such perfect righteousness and perfect prosperity, though at times they may be genuinely used of God to bring about glimpses of this idyllic reign. Again, remember, in fact, it's Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John that remind us that the current ruler of this world is not the Lord's servant, but his enemy bent on destroying the lives of the faithful. So in this sense, while David's prayer is aspirational, that Solomon must seek to achieve these kinds of things, it is chiefly prophetic. It is looking forward to the Davidic king upon whom God's spirit would rest and who would indeed rule in perfect righteousness and justice, who would exercise his kingly dominion over the entire world, who would establish everlasting peace 
under which all of God's people would dwell in prosperity and blessing. This psalm looks forward to Christ. Christ comes from the line of David. He is the promised seed of Abraham who becomes a blessing to all nations and whose dominion extends over all the earth. He is the one there promised in Genesis 3.15 whose heel bruises the head of the serpent. Therefore, friends, our king is Jesus. Far beyond any authority we may have in this life, in our homes, in our governments, or anywhere else in the world, we are ruled by God, namely Christ. We are told that Christ is the head of the church. He is our head. He is the Lord and King. Three things about Christ's kingship that we need to understand. First, Christ's kingship is established before creation. Because the world was created through Christ and for Christ, he need not have come and died for us to be authority over it. He is Lord and God without having created any. And yet his kingship is established even before and in creation. Secondly, Christ's kingship is established in his life and his death. He, like the king here mentioned in Psalm 72, gives perfect righteousness and justice to all those with whom he had come in contact. His kingship and his lordship over others was established in his life and in his death. He becomes the king mentioned here by laying down his life for the sake of those he would come to care for and charge. The way he meets the needs of the poor and liberates the oppressed is by giving himself over to the oppressors and the extortioners. He establishes rule and reign in his own life and death. And lastly, Christ's kingship is established ultimately in his resurrection and his ascension. Christ was not defeated finally and permanently, but was risen from the dead on the third day. And he was ascended to God. And at his right hand, he now sits. And his right hand is a place of God's authority and judgment and justice. It is how God administers grace and mercy, justice and righteousness to the world. Therefore, Jesus, as king, establishes his rule and reign in his resurrection and his ascension. Christ is king now. What does that mean? How are God's people, the church, to be ruled by God's King, who is Christ, while He is in heaven and we are on earth? That's the practical question. Well, I'm just going to consider quickly just the moral and ethical values of Christ's Lordship displayed here in Psalm 72. The King here is a representative of God. He has been given God's justice and righteousness and is an extension of God's rule and reign here on earth. Jesus Himself presents and pictures God perfectly. He is, as we're told, the exact imprint of the nature of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ perfectly represents and images God. And he restores in part and is restoring completely in us our own image of God, which was marred by the fall. And so, friends, one of the ways that we work and live under the headship of Christ, our King, who is the perfect image of God, is by ourselves being representative and ambassadors of Christ in this world. We must walk as those who give breath and life and witness to the kingdom of God of which we are a part. We become representatives of our King, who himself is representative of the Father. This is what the King does in Psalm 72. Secondly, notice the King's commitment to God's law. It is a righteous administration of authority. It is according to God's perfect wisdom, perfect justice, and perfect righteousness that this king acts. Where do we find God's righteous word? We find it in the covenants and the promises of the Old Testament. We find it fulfilled in Christ. And we find it in the charges of the one another's and the communications of us to the world in the New Testament. So friends, one of the ways that we are ruled by Christ in heaven while we are on earth is by our own commitment to God's law. For he who became sin that we might become righteousness now means that we live and walk in righteousness faithfully in this world. Again, as representative ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Lastly, the king there comes to embody the heart 
God's heart of justice and compassion. His heart beats for those who are oppressed and needy. He loves and gives himself for others. Again, Christ is the, is the epitome of such compassion and love and service. At the cross, the justice of God meets with the love of God. Compassion flows to the blood of Christ to those who look on his work, his cross, his death, his resurrection as sufficient for the righteousness that they need but cannot serve. Christ embodies as king the heart of justice and compassion. And so we, as emissaries of the kingdom of God, too, must embody the heart of justice and compassion in our own dealings with others. Our heart goes out for those who are oppressed, vulnerable, and need, who can't speak or stand up for themselves. We are compassionate on those who are hurt or afflicted, and we give ourselves away to such people. For that is the character and the ethos of the kingdom of God. That is the very heart of our king. So we are ruled by God's king, Christ, while he is in heaven and we are on earth by living out these moral and ethical values of Christ's lordship that he demonstrates as king. But the purpose of Psalm 72 for Christians is not merely to serve then as a demonstration that Christ is king, and he is the one described in David's prayer, though that is true, but that it represents both the actual and future reign of Christ over the church, and indeed over the entire world. We affirm that Christ is king, but there are many in this world, like Psalm 2 says, that plot and rage against Christ. We need to look no further than our own hearts to know that not everything is in perfect subjection to God's will under the king, king's rule. And so we look not only to the fulfillment of Psalm 72 in Christ, but to the, few, the, the future and the full fulfillment of this picture on Christ's return. He has come once to be for us the king that Psalm 72 describes. He will come again to usher in the kingdom that Psalm 72 describes. It teaches us to look to the present form of Christ's kingship over the earth, over the church, as we live and behave and give honor and respect and obedience to Him. But Psalm 72 ultimately teaches us to look to the final form of Christ's kingship over the world. Christ will return and establish this kingdom, this one of true and real prosperity, that what we experience in blessing and virtue here in the heart will be that of the country that we live in. It will be the kingdom we dwell in, it will be the true Zion described in Isaiah and over the prophets. This is the king that will come to establish this kind of rule and reign. Psalm 72 teaches us to look to Jesus who has begun, inaugurated this kingdom, but will soon come to establish and consummate that kingdom. Friends, the goal here then is our hearts to be stirred, to love Christ as king, to celebrate under the kingship and headship of Christ, the prosperity we have, the joy and fulfillment, and knowing that Christ is reversing the curses and the fall of sin and is extending blessing to us and to all the world who would come to him in faith. That affection stirred will lead to righteousness and obedience, and the king would be honored. May our lives and our mouths say with Psalm 72, long may he live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ our King. Lord, we have much to look forward to because the nations do plot and rage. There are many rebellious. Our own hearts at times find themselves in enmity against your holy law. But Lord, let us remember who Christ is and what he has accomplished, that he is the one your psalm speaks of, who has been given your justice and righteousness, who administers it perfectly, who has freed the enslaved and the bond, who has given hope to the hopeless, who has raised to life those who were dead in sins. Those who were oppressed have been liberated 
Those who have afflicted have been healed. And he has done all this, not simply through strength or might, but through meekness and humility by laying his own life down for us. So, Lord, we pray that we would model this same humility. That as Christ, who now sits at your right hand, rules in all authority and dominion over all the earth, that we would give homage and obedience to him in the exercise of our own work and our own duties as kingdom citizens. Help us to see the beauty of this psalm as it points us to Jesus and to remember that at any point when we are tempted to join the nations in the rebellion against God, that our kingdom is not of this world, that our king is the Lord who sits on the throne at whose name every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, to whom all glory and dominion and authority is due. He is the one who directs our ways. And he is the one to whom we must call and obey. In this, Lord, may you be glorified. We pray in the name of Christ. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Rises to